So we are going to go ahead and start. And again, for this roundtable, our plan is to hear uh, from Lori, Steve, and then I'll add if there's anything else to add, which I doubt there will be, kind of summative comments of what we've heard today. Uh, but we want to also transition, and Steve and I will offer some suggestions that we're going to then offer for your uh, contributions as well. Next steps, what are some concrete things that we can do uh, as journalists, as teachers of journalism, as religious studies scholars, and as ideas for collaborations to address some of the challenges that we've raised here today? What are some concrete things that we can suggest uh, together to, to um, kind of coalesce the, frame, the, the energies that we've been experiencing here? Um, so let's turn first to, to Lori. We're glad to have your voice back after your wonderful, remarkable beginning last night. Um, and thank you again for that incredible keynote. And, and please, we're eager to hear your thoughts about today. Thank you. Um, I, just looking around, I want to, I, I will give you my comments about today, but there are some amazing people sitting here um, who are fabulous reporters who haven't had a lot to say. So I do hope that when we open it up, um, that some of those people who have really deep experience, um, I'm thinking of you, Dan Burke, will <laughs> have something to say um, about how we can how we can move this along because you know you're you're in the trenches um, and you all heard what I heard as well. So I will reflect what what I heard, but we all heard it. So. Um, I was very struck. I mean, sometimes when I'm out reporting, there's you know this moment where you know it when you hear it. It's like someone says something, and this little jolt of you know electricity goes through, and you write down the quote. And my my habit is I put two little hash marks next to it. It's like so often it's like that's the quote. You know it when you hear it. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a moment like that here today, um, where um, Jeff Charlotte Charlotte uh, was talking about. Um, you know, the, how uh, Donald Trump is such a good storyteller and uh, that, that he felt that that was part of what um, Trump's um, appeal was and that he told these simple stories. And Jeff said, to replace a simple story that's out there, you can't replace it with a complicated story. And that was the moment when, I think it was pretty soon after that, Eddie said, I hear your point about simple stories, but people like Game of Thrones. <laughs> Um, which was just so, you know, to me that encapsulates everything. Game of Thrones, a, you know, three-dimensional chessboard. People can, in fact, um, absorb these very complex uh, narratives, how things intersect. And if we're talking about reality, um, you know, things do, do intersect. I mean, we're, we're here talking mostly about religion, but we also, we can't talk just about religion, right? Class, race, uh, gender religion it all does this, right? So when I heard that, I was thinking, when Jeff said what he said, I thought, you're right. You're right. We can only deal with simple stories. When Eddie said what he said, I thought, he's right. <laughs> we got to come, you know, we got to, we have to be able to reflect the complexity. And I think that in a funny way, both are true. Um, but I think the challenge is the second. Um, how to take what well, reality is complex. I mean, it's just that's honest, right? So how to take, you know, the reality and, and um, reflect it back, but in a way that is relatable and that reads and is memorable. 
um, because in this day and age, I mean, there's so many stories coming at us through so many different uh, media, um, and uh, it's hard to absorb it, and then at the end of the day, what <laughs> sticks with you, you know? So that's just, that's a, more of a, a question. Um, but to me, that was a, a really key moment and, you know, uh, encapsulate what we're doing here. Really quickly, a couple other things. I heard people talking a lot about pushing the envelope a little bit, that we have to do better on language, um, that we are, we are too, being, maybe getting a little too lazy, not questioning um, terminology that we use. White privilege is one. Uh, the definition of evangelicals. Do we even keep using that term? What is that? Certainly, we didn't talk a lot about alt-right, but I know that's part of the discussion, too. Defining the alt-right, should we even be using that term, or should we just be saying white supremacists, nationalists? Um, and, um, you know, being much more mindful when we throw around terms like the working class and assuming that we immediately picture white folks, you know, or, um, you know, the heartland, and that's white folks. Um, when in fact that's not you know that's not accurate. So I you know we heard that on the first panel um, and and both the second panel. Another common theme I think was breaking down the monoliths. Um, that that's part of what good religion writing does. But also I think you know any kind of good good reporting is that you know no one group is a monolith and you look for those multiple voices. Um, part of, you know, part of the challenge is finding, um, you know, the authentic and new voices and not just always the same old, you know, the people who, uh, you know, what did, what did Diane say something about, who wave around the Bible and, um, you know, and you identify, oh, that's the religious voice, when in fact there are often um, very influential voices who aren't yet kind of, you know, the desi designated leaders, but they may in fact be moving people. Um, and so that's part of the, the challenge, too, is to look for those voices and the multiplicity of voices, look for differentiation. Um, then, what else? Um, ah, I like this. Um, and it's really part of a big challenge. Pressing people to articulate what is the religious motivator in what, what they're doing. That it's very easy for us to look at kind of the secular motivations, political, economic, and to speak in those terms. But what is it, you know, what are the kind of religious and theological arguments behind what decisions people are making, behind movements, and to raise those up? If people are resonating with certain Bible passages or, you know, certain people in the Bible, you know, what are, what are those? Um, that that would be, you know, that would be helpful. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then I, I think I will end on this because I liked it so much. Wendy said something that I really liked. She said, too much of the coverage she sees in religion is praise for what churches are doing, which is usually charity. And she said, when the issue is justice, charity is sin. She'd like to see journalists pressing those in the faith community to articulate what their God requires. So that was, to me, that was some very powerful language. That's verbatim. That's pretty, pretty gorgeous stuff. Um, so to me, that applies in so many contexts. You know, um, shouldn't we be challenging, say, the uh, church leaders who are anti-immigration about how that fits with 
you know, what their, what their God requires? Shouldn't we be pressing the religious leaders who are pro-abortion, how that fits into their religious standpoint? I mean, I'm trying to, you know, um, give you a, a variety of ways I could see that applied, but um, that, that piece really made me think, and all this will, I think, help, help in my reporting. Great. Thank you very much. Great. Um, so, uh, so as we said, I'm going to try to say some things very quickly, a, a series of bullet points, really, that I heard, and then talk about what I see as some possible next steps, what academics can do, and and uh, what um, philanthropists can do to support um, this kind of work. Um, one is I loved what Lori said uh, last night about. Uh, and uh, what Michelle said, too, I think, about not being too pie in the sky about what we academics are going to expect religion reporters are supposed to know, as if they're supposed to be, until they're PhDs who can mentor our students, we won't accept them as you know, sufficiently uh, knowledgeable about religion. And, um, and I wanted to add to that um, something that I've also heard, which I, I usually talk about when I talk about religious literacy, and that is, is that the most important thing is to know that religion matters and that when you get to certain places where you don't know, you need to know that you don't know it, and then you need to try to figure it out. And, and the dangers when you don't know that religion is a part of the story and that you imagine that you know what you need to know. So that, that sort of, um, what, what do we call it in the academy? Like epistemic humility, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I think is really crucial to, um, to religious literacy, and I'm grateful to Lori and to Michelle for both um, bringing that up. Um, I also heard uh, questions about what is the media that I thought were really useful. There is a, a, an emphasis today mostly on newspaper, uh, magazine, um, online um, journalists, but social media, of course, is a huge, huge part of the transformation in which uh, we're living. We have a, you know, a Twitter. Uh, president, where that's a story almost uh, almost every day. We heard reference to uh, Viacom and to people who are working on on uh, television shows. We heard um, Eddie uh, Glaude talking about um, Game of Thrones. You know, wh where's the religion? You know, Game of Thrones. That's another way to promote uh, religious literacy. Uh, video games is is you know, what are people doing who are young when they're not reading those newspapers that I get every morning? You know. Um, <laughs> They're playing, so a lot of them are playing video games, especially if they're boys and young men. Uh, podcasts we haven't talked about. Um, uh, Andrew, uh, one of the students at Boston University, he has a, uh, he has a um, YouTube channel called Religion for Breakfast. You know, this is another way of trying to cultivate uh, religious literacy, so we need to attend to that. My third uh, point is I heard also about generational shifts, which is related to these other um, forms of media. Um, Nathan was uh, speaking to this, I think, um, as well, uh, that we need, to, um, we need to pay attention to the ways in, in which uh, young people and older people uh, both consume and produce uh, con content. So on the production side and on the uh, consumption side both, this is an important and increasingly important factor. Something else I heard was what we talk about in uh, the curriculum conversations in religion departments as the religion and uh, arena, the religion and courses, you know, boy, those people at UCC Santa Barbara, they get a lot of people in the seats with those religion and courses, don't they? <laughs> religion and politics, religion and sexuality, you know, whenever, whatever it might be. And I think that in part, 
because of the tendency in the United States to read religion in a Protestant way and in the, with this sort of Madisonian uh, compromise as a private thing, that when religion matters in the public space, when we write about it, is usually when it gets connected to something else that matters. Because on its own, it doesn't, it's not supposed to matter, right? Publicly, it's not supposed to matter. So that's why so much of what we're talking about today is religion and politics, right? Because, oh, now religion matters because people are voting because of their you know, religion or they're mobilizing in protest because of their uh, religion. So I think it's worth thinking about other religion ands when, when, um, when we think about writing about religion in public, you know, other than religion and politics, um, religion and race we've heard about today. I tried to um, push a little bit earlier on religion and sexuality, religion and class. This is one of the big questions after the election um, about identity politics and are we ignoring class too much, uh, you know, not, not thinking of class enough. Um, and then on this issue of the simple and the complex story, um, it wasn't Jeff who said, um, was talking about uh, Jeff Charlet, my, name, my nickname, <laughs> or, or Charles, we'll just call him. Um, um, it was my friend Dave Chappelle, um, another French uh, name. And by the way, not the comedian Dave Chappelle, but the uh, historian at of University of Oklahoma, Dave Chappelle, you know, who said, look, if you want to criticize a super... Uh, like a wrong story that's really easy, you know, you have to replace it with, an, with another um, simple story. And so I want to say a little bit more about that in terms of Eddie, Eddie's uh, response as well. Um, and that is that academia is about making things more complex, right? That's what we get rewarded for. You don't get a dissertation, uh, a PhD, for a grand piece of synthesis. It's usually, it's like I'm doing, you know, liberal Protestants in Lowell between 1810 and 1820 um, with a focus on these two particular congregational churches, right? That's, oh, that's a dissertation, you know? Not like Jesus in America or something like that. So, um, so we get rewarded for the complex. So of course in this room the academics are gonna say we need to make things more complex. <laughs> but people who do write, and including myself, who write 700 word op-ed, you know, op-eds, you know, there, there is um, also a skill and an important skill of writing in a way that is, that is simple and it has really one um, point to make. And I think of the conversations I had when I was working on the God in America TV series for WGBH and, uh, and PBS, and I remember a meeting I had where one of the producers said, hour four, what is the theme in one word? <laughs> and as an academic, of course, you're supposed to roll your eyes and say, you know, harumph, you know, that's a stupid question, you know. You know, there is no such, there's no answer to that question. But, of course, in television, there is an answer to that question because there are going to be three segments and each segment is 20 minutes long and they have to cohere and they have to have a theme for the hour. So there actually does have to be an answer to that question. And I found that question to be intellectually really interesting. I mean, um, even, uh, even as it's kind of can be seen as a silly and stupid question, even as we would, of course, want to complexify things, um, we, I think this is about genres. You, know, you have to realize Jeff gets to be more complex with the story he's writing for however many thousand words he has in Rolling Stone or in wherever he's writing. 
Um, and, and then others have, you know, or if Jeff's writing an Instagram, Instagram piece, right, which we haven't talked about, you know, Jeff does wonderful journalism on Instagram, you know, that is, I don't know how many words that is, but it's not very many words that you, that you get to do. So I think the challenge is to think about the simple and the complex um, and to somehow maybe use the, use the push to the complex to get us out of the simple. And let me give one example of this. I taught a course years ago on the theme of wandering in the world's religions. And we read some French theorists of the, of the early to mid 20th century who were urban geographers who noticed that in urban areas, which are supposed to be about pluralism and complexity and, and um, you know, diversity of options, that people actually just went on the same route. You know, you could follow a person and they always went to that bus and they always went to that coffee shop and then they had three restaurants and then they went back to here to, do, to get their clothes. And it was really weird, like not much different from what people in rural areas do. And so they, they conducted this uh, experiment they called the derive, where they said, let's figure out ways to make people wander, to get them out of the ruts, mm. out of the ruts in which they walk through cities so that they don't always go to that same coffee shop. And they said, okay, look, go to a corner and stop at the corner and look and find something that draws your attraction and move toward it. And to do, do that as their derive, their walk through the urban space. Each corner make a decision and follow your, your interests. Or, or do a random, random generation, every third corner go right, every second corner go left, whatever. So I, I think there's a virtue to that, to get us out of our, the ruts of the stories that we tell so that we can, that we can um, write more complex stories and perhaps develop a simpler story that can be a widely spread and widely uh, believed story that can replace some of those other um, simple stories. This is related as well to one train um, hides another. Um, as for next steps, what can academics do? I think it's really important that we try to stop bad-mouthing religion reporters. Um, I, hear I hear this a lot. I think, we need, I think we need, we as academics who are in the room, need to see uh, journalists as partners in this effort at spreading um, religious literacy. Um, we need to learn um, how to talk to the press better. I think one reason why we badmouth reporters is because we spend 45 minutes with a reporter and they don't put us, they don't quote us in their article, mm -hmm. and that makes us mad or they quote us in the article in a way that we never would have said, or they only quote us once when they should have quoted us 10 times, and then it would have been a more complicated and, and more ego-gratifying thing. So um, I think we need to do that, and I think I'm really glad we have the president of the AAR here who we can ask to do stuff. So w one thing we could ask the AAR to do is to have workshops on how to talk, how to, talk to the press, where we could bring in um, scholars and bring in um, journalists uh, and talk about uh, what would be useful there. Uh, I think academics can um, make efforts to write for um, audiences who are not their students and are not their, uh, their colleagues and write for broader audiences. I think that's an important uh, endeavor. I think we can revive this uh, AAR scholars database that Laurie uh, referred to before as this wonderful, wonderful resource for uh, journalists where you can go through and find the weirdest, like who is the vampire expert at the AAR, you know, it's, it, it, by the way, it's uh, Joe Laycock, Joe Laycock. Yeah. Who's, uh, who's at Texas State. Um, but you know, if you really need a vampire expert, you know, who, who studies vampire communities, you know, in America, you know, you can, you can find it. Now that is, a, that is a defunct database and the AAR could get that up, up and running in keeping with its new uh, emphasis uh, on the public understanding of religion. Um, that's another uh, next step. I think academics can, can push their departments and uh, push the AAR 
and push their universities to um, focus more on the public understanding of religion. This is a very easy sell to presidents and provosts, I can state uh, in my own experience. They love people who go out and get on television and get on the radio. Not so much in, inside many departments. Um, and so uh, that's something that in your academic departments you can do to say, we should recognize this kind of work. This isn't just something someone does on the side. This is something that is actually important to their scholarly, um, to their scholarly production, that there are publics other than um, other, other academics. Uh, I love what Angela said uh, about um, archiving and about how, I mean, this chilling, chilling um, evocation of the new America as a kind of China where we have to worry um, about our um, about the dissemination of our work because we don't know whether freedom of speech and freedom of the press are going to be sufficiently preserved to do so and that in that context we need to focus on uh, production uh, of um, content and then on the archiving of content and uh, and when you said that, I turned to Eddie and I said, you know, that's your, your book, um, the, uh, Democracy in Black, where at the end, Eddie says, you know, we need to pay attention to the areas in which we find ourselves, that this is where we can be confident that we can be, um, we can have an influence. And so, um, so archiving is another. And then what can philanthropists uh, do? This is my, uh, we had wanted to talk in, in, in these conferences about uh, what sorts of things could be funded going forward in religious um, literacy. So these are just some of the ideas. One is to fund uh, the Religion um, Newswriters Association. This, as we heard uh, from Deborah, is something that she did and worked on for years and years and years. But um, this is a real treasure. This is something that uh, religion reporters, Lori was saying. Yeah, um, um, there's you know, a number yeah. of interlocking organizations. There's the Religion News Association. There's also Religion News Service. Yes, right. I'm which sorry, is, I yeah. meant to say right. um, Religion News Association. N N yeah. News Service? News Service. News Service, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is like the AP of, yeah. uh, or like a religion wire. Yes, mm -hmm. that's... A daily report. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And this is where you turn to in the morning. You get up and you, and you yes. look at it, you were mm -hmm. saying. Yes. And so this is something, okay, that, and now is that $2 million a year? Is that what it is for, for that? Roughly? Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of short money for somebody um, or some uh, uh, foundation in terms of what's maybe the most important thing that could be done to promote religious literacy right now is to keep that thing alive, mm -hmm. right? I mean, w w what's a better, a better use of money? Anyway, that's one. There's also a, a world religion database that's now funded um, out of Boston University. Um, that's threatening to be shut down. That's an aggregator of, uh, of data about how many Muslims are there in China, how many uh, you know, Hindus are there in India. Right? That, that's their um, expertise, and it's run on a total shoestring, and it's, it's running out of money. Um, Michael Cromerty, for years, has done these, uh, what does he call it? You all have been, everyone in this room. Thank you, the Faith Angle Forum. So, yeah, so I mean, most journalists in religion um, have been invited uh, to do that. Many scholars have been invited to do that. You know, Michael is a kind of, uh, Michael is an evangelical who's really interested in uh, undercutting journalists' antagonisms to evangelicals. Is that fair? Is that fair to say? Part of, at least that, that's the way I read w what Michael is interested in. And I think there could be a parallel sort of thing where you could gather, um, I mean, one of his gimmicks was Key West in like February, like good gimmick, you know. Um, but gather uh, uh, religion um, writers and uh, 
and, uh, and scholars to foster the kind of collaboration across this uh, academic and journalistic divide that, uh, that is one reason I have found this day and last night so um, generative. Uh, and then uh, another that Jeff um, Charlotte um, was talking about is just rewarding beautiful writing. You know, I, I loved hearing what Angela um, had to read today. That was beautiful. Could you like read it again, like for me, just in private, like afterwards? <laughs> I mean, it, it was. It, well, it was um, it was beautiful. And you know, one thing that attracts people to content is that if it's beautifully written, you know, like like the story Jeff, Jeff wrote about these. Uh, these Trump supporters, you know, I mean, can we, can we have a prize for this? You know, like beautiful religion uh, writing. This is something that attracted me years ago to uh, the Killing the Buddha uh, website that mm. hasn't got a shout out yet, but that was mm. Peter, uh, Peter Manso and Jeff and others, uh, and many in the, in the room have been um, involved with Nathan. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just beautiful writing. You don't even have to care about religion to read that stuff. But, um, but along the way, you know, people are, people are you know, learning something and becoming engaged. And this is my last, uh, my last point, is that uh, when I was writing my American Jesus book, it was my first trade book, and I wrote it with uh, Paul Eli, who's a wonderful uh, religion writer who um, I feel bad that I didn't think to invite today because he would have been really wonderful and important. He teaches now at George, uh, Georgetown. He writes for... Uh, he did a piece last weekend, I think, in the New York Times Magazine on uh, Scorsese and, and Catholic film. Uh, but he was my editor, and um, I sat down to talk with him about my book, and I just wanted to give him a hug. I was like, Paul, I love you. You are so smart, and you know more about American religion than a lot of my colleagues in American religious history with PhDs in my field. Like, I, I love talking to you. And that was a really important moment for me. And it was a moment when I first started to move out away from primarily having conversations with other academics to realizing, like, these religion writers are kind of cool people to talk to. And these editors are really interesting and smart people. Like, like who knew, you know? Um, so so that, that's my note to end on. Like, thank you all for being, who, like, who you are and for being like cool people to talk to. Like I hope that we can continue um, this conversation as we go forward and we can have more and more uh, collaborations between scholars of religion and, uh, and religion journalists. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I agree with everything that my friend and colleague Steve Prothero has said here, really. Prothero, no, actually. Prothero. <laughs> If you get to make fun of the fact that I mispronounced, you're going to get it back. Anyway, um, so I'm going to just highlight just a couple other things that I thought we anticipated that we didn't want to just reproduce what others said. Um, I, want to, I want to come back to a comment that Jason made that I really appreciated, a question. He said, we've got to focus on the why as much as the what in our reporting or in our thinking about. And that ties back into this question we were articulating here in this last panel is like, what does it mean to talk about religious literacy or religion? It's like, what's the motivating factors? What's happening? What, are, what is happening on, with religion on the ground? How do we interpret the, the, the power of religion in a given moment, a given story? So that why question. And then I want to return back to this issue of, you know, simple versus complex, because I want to, and, and, and to shout out to Angela too, not just for sharing that beautiful poem, but to reminding us of the important role of artists. And I think, you know, good journalists, journalists 
are better than me as an academic at storytelling. And the storytelling piece is an artistic piece. And I just want to, I want to I give, lend credibility to that because, you know, you can tell, you can make, you can make, if I'm trying to make a complicated point, I'm going to start in with all my theory nerd language, my neoliberalism language, my, you know, that, that's the world I live in. That's kind of the world I really myself have been trained in. But one of my new projects is to want to partner with artists and storytellers. Eliza Griswold, for example, who I'm really sorry was not able to be here, who's a remarkable storyteller, along with many of you who we heard from here. Wendy, Thomas, I'm going to listen to her stories forever. Uh, you can tell, you can, storytelling allows us to make complicated points. Uh, so it doesn't have to be about like you know complicated language. So that's an artist artistic way to be thinking about these questions, um, and I and so that ties into then Nathan's comment too about the complexity. How do we bring in complexity? I think we do it through stories. I think we do it through artistry and a collaboration between artists and 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 journalists and academics. I want to make a, another point about. Um, this question of, uh, actually now I'm moving, I'm gonna move in, into now, I'm not gonna go into that, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna say some suggestions, uh, building off of what uh, Steve was talking about. We're starting a really important conversation here at Harvard, or we, we've been having it, but we're in our 200th anniversary of the Divinity School, and one of the opportunities for those kinds of anniversaries is we you know, get to think about his, our historic past, which I wanna reinvigorate, I didn't know we had a radio, uh, whatever, I want to know where that is, um, where, where the radio tower was or whatever. Um, but we're asking, what are, what are we actually training people for in this new century, in this time? So we have a, you know, we've got a pretty, I think, constructive and creative way to think about Master of Divinity, our training for people who consider themselves religious leaders or are thinking about <laughs> religious leadership or religious practice in the world. We've got a pretty pretty broad framework for that. We've got a Master of Theological Studies, which is our thinking about religious, um, uh, the academic study of religion, and we have our PhD program. Uh, mo traditional ministries are shrinking. Uh, the biggest enrollment we have is in our religion, politics, and ethics concentration in the, in the Master of uh, of theological studies, and some of our students are really frustrated because that tends to be a place where we don't have that many courses that's doing the religion and question. So how do we really think in an academic way about the next generation of students that are coming through our programs, religious studies programs or uh, you know, graduate stu students, what are we training people to do? And even in our doctoral program, we're starting to ask that question. What does it mean, you know, with a very shrinking market for people who are going to get PhDs in religious studies, the job market is very, very slim, as many of my colleagues who are on that job market are now experiencing. So what does it mean to think about creating avenues within our institutions for the public understanding of religion through not just the traditional tracks that we've associated with religion, but uh, religion and government, religion and politics, religion and the arts, religion and um, uh, community, uh, any number of things, but how do we create religion and business, religion and public health, uh, religion and journalism? How do we create these avenues that are actually tracks, if you will, within our programs? And then the other piece I want to talk about in terms of the academy and the study of religion is to say we have all these resources 
The Religious Literacy Project is one of them. We've got things at the Daniel Center. I'm just talking with Stuart Hoover about a new project that loses funding for them. Okay, this is a real challenge, and, I, and I'm going to ask us to really at least take it on. What would it mean for us to get out of our silos and say, this is our program, and we're going to protect our program, or we're going to promote our program? What would it mean for us to really say, let's collaborate and really think constructively about using these remarkable resources that all these institutions have, and rather than reproduce the wheel or have these silos where we're each doing our own different thing, to say, how do we think strategically in a long-term way about pooling these resources and saying, this center does this really well, this center does this really well, and we actually create mechanisms for students uh, to actually move around and through those centers as part of their training. That, for me, feels like a real, in one way, a no-brainer, but the politics of that, I think, become really challenging, um, unfortunately. And then, I think, I think, finally, the other one I want to talk about is, what does it mean for us to be to really take seriously, again, especially places like Harvard. There are so many institutions that are going under. So many, so many really fine institutions that are now struggling and dying, and both in liberal arts as well as in graduate schools. So, so first of all, what does it mean for institutions that are financially secure to take seriously our civic responsibility outside of training our own students and our own, um, our own constituencies? What does it mean to say we have a, a, a responsibility for uh, a larger, and I would say in our context here in the United States, a, a larger responsibility now to shore up the foundations of democracy? And how do we do that? How do we think about that? And that means for me, having relationships with people in the community that are fluid, that we bring people from a variety of communities into our place to learn from and with them. We send our students and those who can go out to those places to learn with and from them. We are a convening power, which is one of the reasons we're doing the Religious Literacy and the Professions Symposium. We use our convening power as institutions to bring people together, not just for a conference or a symposium, although these are great, but then to really say, not just one-off conversations, but how do we start to build coalitions that say, we're gonna do something with this. So we're gonna open this up now because we really want to hear the, this notion of what can we do? What does it mean? What are the implications of the things we're, we're speaking about here? We'd love to start to hear from you. We also hope, and those of you who are watching us, uh, either now virtually live, or and those who will come after the fact to watch this recording, please um, let's hear from you. Um, and I'm gonna suggest that and Sarah Ben and uh, Lauren, let's, we, we can be, as the sponsors of this, we can be the, the kind of repository for ideas that won't necessarily be generated here, but send information to us um, and we'll post this on the website uh, for, for further ideas. But let's open it up now and hear ideas. What do we do? What are other generative ideas that we can uh, shape? And sp again, specifically, what can journalists do? What can academics do? What can institutions do? And how can we think collaboratively? And let's uh, be as, as quick with your su suggestions as we can be so that we can get as many in as possible. So, okay, Diane, thanks. Uh, Lori, I'm sure you've seen the uh, various Twitter feeds on Dean Bacay's statement today. Yeah? Dean McKay said we don't get, we don't get religion um, and that although we have a fabulous religion reporter, we've done a pretty bad job of covering it. 
So you as a fabulous religion reporter, what do you, what do you think you could go back to Dean and tell him about what the Times can do to improve its religion <laughs> coverage? I'm thinking that, I'm, I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking that over. Okay. Okay, so again, suggestions for how to move forward, ideas about what we can do. Um, yeah, let's, all right, over here, Mario and back. Um, Jason, yeah. Good evening, uh, my name is Mario Caterfetch and I work for Viacom, uh, mainly uh, producing social responsible campaigns for Nickelodeon worldwide, 19 languages, 140 countries. So back in, when I started to work uh, 14 years ago, GLAD uh, came to train me uh, to understand the GLBTQI issues and how to incorporate their issues into our productions, our programming, our one-minute news <laughs> segments are mostly about music and fun things. Um, and I'm wondering if there is such an organization uh, like a GLAD uh, for religious literacy that would train journalists and entertainers or entertainment industry like myself uh, the same way GLAD did with me 14 years ago. So s since they trained me, um, we have had, I want to say, over 25 uh, campaigns dealing with GLBT uh, issues on MTV, even on Nickelodeon. Uh, we have had so many GLBT characters incorporated into our programming, including Nickelodeon in the US. Uh, we had a transgender character in Nickelodeon, which is a kid's channel. Um, so this kind of training really not only changed my life, but by doing so, it changed the life, I hope, of millions mm -hmm. of people worldwide. So I'm wondering, does that exist, or is there something I should take on. <laughs> uh, Jeff, and then Monique, who's right next to him. That'll be easy. Yeah. Jason DeRose from NPR. I mean, one thing that you can do as an academy is to go to undergraduate religion programs or undergraduate journalism programs and recruit them to come here to Harvard as grad students in an MTS program. Um, you know, nobody recruited me to go to graduate school in religion, but I still went, and then I had to fight tooth and nail to get to do what I want to do. And luckily, I'm, I'm not sure she's here, but Stephanie Paulsell was my advisor and let me do my MDiv field work at WBEZ in Chicago covering religion. Great. Yeah. So yeah. I think that you have to be open to people who aren't interested in scholarship necessarily and aren't interested in, in ministry, but might have some interest in religion and public life. Right. And then when, I, when people propose like, I don't want to work in a church, let me work at a public radio station, say, we can make that work yeah. and really foster that kind. You can do that. Many divinity schools could do that. You know, I'm sure that Deborah students at Missouri would love for you to show up and say, hey, want to come here. That, you know, that's great. We, we have that opportunity for students here, but we don't go, I don't think, we don't go recruit them. And I think that's a key, a really key point. So great, great. Thanks, Jason. I'm Monique Parsons. I'm a freelance religion reporter. And I, um, I, was just, I was a student here 25 years ago in the MTS program. And I was just thinking about the, the academics who do return my calls quite quickly. And um, so often the ones that have gone here do respond very quickly. And I think there might be something about the mindset here, hopefully. But um, along the lines of what, what could be done, or what, and I got very excited about the thought of you know, bringing that database back and what could mm. um, AAR do to sort of help bridge the divide a little bit between the reporters and the academics. And I think there's just so much fascinating work going on in academia in the study of religion that it's, it's just impossible for anyone to keep up with. But as religion reporters, I mean, I was sort of my, 
I hate cocktail parties, but my ideal cocktail party would be to have a room full of religion scholars and just be able to go one by one and say, what are you working on? Just tell me in five minutes and what's exciting to you? Mm. And that way it would, it would give us a chance to do some great stories about innovative work and it would also help us under, you know, through history understand what's going on now in a much more intelligent way. So um, a little meet and greet would <laughs> be fabulous. I love it. Yeah, dinner parties, I like that. <laughs> okay, um, yes, here? front, and then Susan Lloyd. Hi, so my name is uh, Steve Nunez. I'm a current uh, Master of Theological Studies candidate here right now in the Religion, Ethics, and Politics program. Um, one of the things that interested me in the program that I struggle with every day is the language. Uh, I'm from southeastern North Carolina at a little town called Wilmington um, that's very seeped in racism. Um, so one of the problems that I have is every day that I sit through a class or every book that I read, this, that, and the other, I gain more articulate language to express a more complicated, nuanced version of what I'm thinking, but that takes me farther away from the communities that I'm trying to serve. Mm -hmm. um, so as an academic, mm -hmm. I think that that language piece is very important, and I think that that, that it, for instance, uh, like Steve said, the the complexity of a dissertation, I think that we need to start rethinking about uh, do we need to become more complex? I think that we do, but I think we need to make the language more accessible to the people that we're trying to serve, especially from a religious institution. Um, furthermore, in the spirit of uh, Dr. Cornell West, who is on his way back here, um, I would implore us to look within um, particularly from the political realm, being from Wilmington, North Carolina, we've only had one non-democratic uh, congressman since 1871, yet at the same time, my city has a cotton exchange that boasts historically good shopping and dining. So I think that it becomes very, very easy to other the other um, without looking inward and saying, what are we doing? from the left, what is, what is the problem with the Democratic Party? And, we, and we, it's easy to place blame on white evangelicals and Donald Trump without interrogating the fact that Hillary Clinton coined the term super predator and the 1994 crime bill was a Democratic platform and et cetera, insert Glass-Steagall here, insert, 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 um, and really interrogate how white liberalism has failed a lot of brown populations. Um, I think that's one thing that hasn't been done, and I think that has to do something with the people that are sitting in this room right now. But that would be my biggest thing, is uh, look inside of ourselves every day and see how we can do better and uh, interrogate ourselves. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Susan Lloyd. Susan Lloyd McGarry, uh, Harvard of the B Center for Health and Human Rights. I was interested when Michelle talked about, um, when she touched on kind of the problematics of a moral approach to, the, to refugees and immigration. Uh, and um, I can't help but look at it that way and to see that the root of it is just global inequality. And if you raise inequality within the United States, also think of that within um, the incoming uh, administration and how um, Trump's campaign and his election has made it, uh, has legitimized the vocalization and acting out of racism and um, 
the structural racism that already exists. So my question, I do have a question in here, or, um, is so uh, I'm wondering if part of this and part of the Trump trope isn't kind of a recurring of the Protestant ethic or Puritanism where who wins is good by, by definition and whether in fact we can challenge that uh, bringing in more moral language or religious language or however we can challenge that. Okay, okay. great, thank you. Behind. Hi, my name is Kaylee Handelman. I work with Angela Zito at the NYU Center for Religion and Media. I publish our online magazine, The Revealer, or I edit it, Angela publishes it. Um, <laughs> um, I, press, I press publish, so I think that's the, the confusion, <laughs> uh, not the, techni the technical language. Um, I wanted to sort of point, point to something I've been thinking about for the last day and a half, which is one of the, the commonalities here that actually hasn't gotten talked about much is, is one of labor and economy and is the, uh, the commonality of adjuncts and freelancers. And um, Diane Winston was talking yet, uh, earlier today about we're having this conversation like it's 1992. And one of the things that is true now that was not then um, is, is the sort of flipping of the iceberg of how many people are tenured versus how many people are adjunct. And we've had a similar inversion in terms of staff writers and editors to freelancers. And that both icebergs have just totally flipped. And we've been mostly talking about the tips of both. We've been talking about staff writers and editors, and we've been talking about tenured faculty. Um, so then trying to, to be constructive with that, uh, sort of not just bemoaning it, though there's, there's a lot to be bemoaned, but to say, you know, where, where, where are we all engaging with that? And I think actually the, the answer is classrooms. And the answer is pedagogy. And going, the suggestion about recruiting is fantastic, but it is one of, you know, all of us engage with undergraduates or people newly out of college. Um, and so to think really seriously about what we're doing in our classrooms uh, in terms of literacy, religious literacy, but also professional preparation and being really honest about what those marketplaces, first of all, that they are marketplaces, and secondly, what the realities of those marketplaces are. And, um, one, one finer point on that would just be to say, I think something we talk about a lot at the center are sort of the weird genres of writing that nobody trains you to do. And no one trains you to write an abstract, no one trains you to write a grant, no one trains you to write a pitch. Teach your students that. You know, it's not a hard thing to put on a syllabus and it will be so, everyone has to write an ab a grant application at this point. I can't think of a field where you don't. Everyone has to be able to distill their project into something really small. Mm -hmm. And this isn't even the, the complexity simplicity question, this is just compress what you're doing. Um, and if we could train undergraduate students, whether they go into the sciences, whether they go into the humanities, whether they become professionals, they're all gonna need to do it. So that, that would be my suggestion. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, we need to be over here. Let's say, let's see, Bruce, and then we'll go up. Bruce McGever, right there, yeah. Um, well, first, I, I just want to say, uh, I guess I'm delighted to see how far, uh, or how, how far religious literacy has come in terms of importance and just the way that you celebrate it. And I congratulate the way that Diane has done it and organized here and your online course and how much you 
you reach. And also Steve and the way that he writes and what he has done and gotten out and, you know, really, uh, it's the facts. This is what we need in the prejudice in this country. And it's why it's so important, it's why I support it. And Laura, your uh, speech last night was just wonderful in terms of, uh, and I look forward to reading more of the journalism. It's really am amazing because, uh, first of all, it's reaching two, two academic ac uh, institutions reaching across uh, the, the borders here to cooperate to do this. And so it's the start of something that we do need to do, uh, I think. Uh, and also, it's the start of, of talking, doing this across different professions as well, which is what really important because religion is so important. Um, I got one problem, and you probably know what that is, and that is that um, there's a lot of bias here. I think there's a lot of political bias underneath here that's baggage that I think we've got to get over and rise above. And we're all intellectually uh, mature enough to do that, I think. I think we've got to bury the hatchet and get on with it that we will get further in what it is the most, I think the, one of the most important thing is religious literacy and how we get along as human beings um, and getting off of this um, uh, bemoaning uh, the fact, I mean, everybody, I've been on the other side um, uh, of, of, the, of the, you know, we've all lost, we win and lose in life. And it seems to me that we've got to get above it and uh, move on, and that we need to take the leadership as a divinity institution uh, and set the example and, and go on from there. Great, great, Bruce. Um, we've got time for just a couple more comments. Uh, Lily, let's have Lily. <laughs> So we've spent a lot of time uh, complaining about how you know corporate media and how all they care about is the bottom line. And um, so one idea, and some newspapers have you know tried the nonprofit model, and religion news service is is one example of how that can work. But until uh, more media outlets go that way, uh, I think it would be great if we saw more partnerships between nonprofit outlets and corporate media. Uh, just as an example of that, The Atlantic magazine, I know recently got funding for religion <coughs> reporting. And so Emma Green, who uh, I think had to divide her duties before, can spend a lot more time now just writing full time on religion. And she's produced, like, I've already seen some great pieces. So. Um, that's an example of the kind of thing uh, that can happen with, with those kinds of partnerships. And, and just one other note, I mean, with, with more people, uh, there's so few uh, reporters doing religion reporting full time. Um, that, uh, and there's some of this already, but I'd like, you know, if there was, again, you know, more opportunities, more funding available for folks who maybe, you know, need to take a trip somewhere to do a story on religion, that that would be more available. Great, thank you. We've got just a little bit more time, so I'm gonna be very strict and ask, we're gonna, we'll hear from everyone, but you need to literally keep it to two sentences, short sentences. A pitch. A pitch, yeah, so raise your hand if you've got a, a suggestion. Uh, Carly, are you raising your hand? Yeah. Yeah, okay. She gets to hold the mic. Oh, she gets it the first there. Phone, so. 
So, short. Sure, sure. Um, I've been thinking about what Angela said about um, thinking about things that we can do on an individual level every day to promote religious literacy, and I think that that's worth considering as we go forth from today because coalition building is important, but also just changing our everyday mindsets is important, as you all know. Um, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that this is a room full of a lot of white people, and I think that's something that the world doesn't force us to do very often as white people, speaking as a white person, is to draw a line around our own subjectivity. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to be thinking about, um, you know, putting really in the forefront of our work, either as academics or as journalists, to say, I'm, I'm speaking out of my experience as a white person. And to name the subjectivity of the white people that we write about in a way that, you know, we haven't always felt maybe quite as responsible about doing. Um, so. Yeah. That was one sentence. Amazing. All right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, again, quick, uh, right here, right here, and then Eddie. Oh, great. And then Dan. If you make it a run on it, it's always one <laughs> Chris Walton from UU World Magazine. My appeal is I would love to find a way for those of us who are doing nonprofit supported religion journalism to be in some sort of network with each other where we can actually talk about this. Because um, there are real opportunities, and my, my response is, Laurie, when you were talking about the collapse in the number of religion reporting positions, part of the problem is now we're losing the field team. I mean, where do people enter the profession and, and learn the skills? And I think there may be a way that those of us who are in nonprofit or organizationally supported media can help provide some of those spots, but I need dialogue partners to figure out how to do that. Great, thank you. Um, over here, let's do Dan. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just real quick, thank you to Diane, thank you to Lori. Um, three quick suggestions. One, I used religion source on every story that I've ever written uh, and found, as Lori said, the obscure. I found the expert, basically, the, found the person who knew what they were talking about, and I found the things that they had written so I could ask intelligent questions in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't just cold calling them, I had read what they had written. Number two, don't wait for the legacy media to give you a platform. Start a MailChimp account and start writing columns. I read every one of mm -hmm. Martin Marty's citing columns oh, yeah. while I'm waiting you know, at the post office or wherever, and he doesn't have a platform, he just emails them out. I mean, I think the Div School in Chicago does give him a platform, but you know what I'm talking about. Just start writing and send it to us. We will read it and we will call you. And the third thing, in the spirit of hearing from the other side, I wonder if Harvard would suggest or would consider um, inviting Donald Trump's pastor, Paula White, to speak to you at some point. Um, she's really close to him. She knows his theology. She knows him. And it would be someone who is close to the president and has something to say. When I've talked to her, she, her biggest concern is that the media and other people don't take her seriously as a, as a public figure and as a preacher. I think it'd be interesting to hear what she has to say. Great, okay, thank you. Um, back up here, then, I'm sorry, then Eddie, guess all the way in the back. Hey, my name's Nick. Uh, I'm a PhD student here uh, in the religion program. And I um, wanted to, uh, one of the most interesting articles to me and that I saw picked up quite a bit in this election cycle was a rhetorical analysis of the way Trump speaks in short, uh, uh, highly repetitive uh, bits. And 
one of the more interesting aspects of today's conversation was about the importance of stories, simplicity and complexity and all the rest. And so I'd encourage um, both uh, religion journalists and religious scholars to see rhetorical patterns, um, both in terms of word usage, but rhythm and um, phatic speech, emotionally laden speech, as actually being a very important way that religion not only moves, but gets formed. Um, it's not just religion as moving through institutions or through uh, clerical garb or through people who profess a certain identity, but to see someone like Glenn Beck or, um, uh, I mean, there's so, I mean, or Alex Jones or, uh, you know, all the, uh, or Rachel Maddow as actually preachers in their own right um, who are, who are not, contributing to a siloing of, uh, of, of, uh, of perspectives um, in an echo chamber, but are actually speaking to a congregation that is consciously uh, looking for certain moral voices um, to enhance their lives. Thank you. Thank you. Eddie? So really quickly, um, one, the editorial project. Uh, we actually invited the editorial project to come to the African American Studies Department at Princeton, um, and it, the editorial project actually works with minority minority groups or people of color and women to teach uh, professors how to write editorials. And they gave, uh, and as a result, many of us wound up writing for Time, many of us wound up writing for the New York Times. So, da -da. so actually, there are, there's a resource to bring to your unit. To teach how to teach us how to do that kind of writing. What's the name of it? It was the editorial project. I'll send you the actual okay. name uh, and their and their contact information. The second thing is, um, echoing a point that was just made about uh, the hustle. The hustle is to me. I've figured this thing out. I think I have, right? And that is that media wants to us to believe that they're doing us a favor by asking. You know that they're going to give us a platform and and when in fact they're in search of content. They're on a perennial search for content. And guess what? We have it. <laughs> and so the question is, how do we capture our content and capture our content regularly? Um, and so one of the things that we've done in the Department of African American Studies, we actually built a website. Our, our departmental website functions like the GRIO. It functions like HuffPost, right? So we're always aggregating what we're doing in the public domain. So the question, and, and trying to figure out how we drive our content to various publics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then as we drive our content to these various publics, people who are writing in our field, because we did the analytics around our website, and we kept seeing what people were coming to look, what they were looking for. Right. And they were always coming to our faculty, searching our latest talks, <coughs> da, 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 right. and they were trying to find, so we made it easier for them to find it, and we are driving it to them, Great. trying to inform. So there are ways in which we can actually imagine the platforms that we have already to Great. do the work that we're talking about. Great, excellent. Okay, we're gonna do a, a couple more quick comments over here, but Calperna, I wanted to give a shout out, get ready to say you're very, now not five minutes, but two minute, but. Kalpana, Kalpana. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, <laughs> forgive me. Um, okay, so let's go ahead, because that's a good follow up. So I just wanted to bring up what we are doing. And uh, what we do is uh, we have a website called The Conversation, which is a global website in Australia, here in the US, UK, France, South Africa. We actually work with academics 
not on op-eds, our, our pieces are not op-eds, but actually get your research and write research-based pieces. And we train academics on how to write. We have a rigorous editing process. The pieces don't just remain on our website, but they get picked up by the Associated Press. They also go on, um, you know, are actively repitched to different organizations. So that means an academic has an opportunity to get published in not just one media outlet, but maybe like five different outlets at the same time. Great. What they also get to see is uh, who is reading them, how many reads are they getting. So they get a dashboard. And the good thing about what we think is a very new model is we do all the editing, but we have what we call a mutual approval process. So the piece does need to meet our standards of quality and everything that we expect in good journalism. But we do not publish the piece until we also get the approval of the academic. Great. So we That's want to make critical. sure that there is yeah. no, uh, you know, misquoting that yeah. can happen. Great. So that's in brief. And academics then go on to do interviews. They've got book contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Great. So just wanted to put it out there as a collaborative project that you might want to think about Great. when you're thinking about writing. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, gentlemen here and Jeff and then Bud, and I think that's it. I would suggest very quickly um, that the religious illiteracy of classroom teachers is enormously problematic. Um, as a veteran teacher of 40 years, it's startling. Um, <clears throat> divinity schools um, could think about the intersection of working with, but it's a minefield. Because when you start to go into public education, then you're running up against the First Amendment and all those, but here it would be easy. Okay. So let me just actually say that's that's what that's the origin of the religious literacy project is working with public school teachers and we actually have a that's that's been one of the foundation of the work that we do um, although it is a minefield and yes you're right <laughs> thank you though it's a really critical one Jeff I just wanted to emphasize Angela's suggestion earlier of shelter uh, this is what academics can do for journalists give give us shelter. I owe my career to Angela and Diane Winston, as do a number of other religion journalists who came up through the, uh, the Revealer, and to extend that shelter as well in the context of journalism and scholarship to just, again, Angela, to poets, to fiction writers. Yeah. I think of documentary poet. I think of, of the poet Patricia Lockwood, whose poem, Rape Joke, was yeah. probably mm -hmm. one of the most widely read works of journalism, in a sense, mm -hmm. on sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, there is that work that can cross over, and those things need to be in that conversation, mm -hmm. and that's how we all get, us journalists, scholars, um, we all make our work more beautiful and more able to reach out, as, as Steve was saying. Before. Fabulous. Okay, and Bud, I think you're going to get the last word here. You have, uh, you have scholars and you also have people who are journalists for secular media, but there also are uh, hundreds of people who are reporters and write about religion for faith-based media and interfaith organizations. So in addition to the Religion News Writers Association, which a number of the presenters here today uh, participate in, there's also Religion Communicators Council. And the people that are there are writing to people whose ears are already tuned to the idea of hearing about religion. Uh, they're writing in vehicles that are framed in the idea of religion. And so uh, offering them training and including them as part of the, the guise of working on religious literacy, and RCC does have the objective of helping to advance religious literacy, is an important thing. 
Uh, number two, uh, when Stephen Prothero came to Boston University, I was a PhD student there, and there actually were professors who envied him and were jealous of him because he was a public intellectual, because he was a guy whose books were gonna be in the airport uh, bookstore, as opposed to most of his peers who are more introverted and are writing stuff that's inane and didn't have the same sort of objectives. And within higher education, we actually need to foster that as being a positive culture, as an idea that uh, people become uh, such uh, public uh, intellectuals. And just thirdly, there was mention about um, uh, Lori is the gold standard uh, in terms of religion reporting, and it, the idea that Dean had mentioned the fact that she's the only person writing about religion, they're not doing it well enough for the New York Times. There are examples, that she cited the Atlantic, but there's also the Washington Post went to having two staff, plus digital staff and so forth, supporting them, and there are other places where there has been this countercurrent of actually having more people write or talk about religion, and we need to celebrate those uh, places. Uh, I was challenged by Sarah uh, Pullen-Bailey to actually you know, subscribe to the Washington Post and talk about it, and so I, I did. And I said thank you, and here's why I'm subscribing to the Washington Post. So. Great, thank you, bud. I'm, we, we, we need to end just because we're already over time. I want to just say a couple final uh, quick, quick comments. First, I want to say that we are organizing, um, and this is for a particular audience, I'll, I'll admit, but we're gonna invite all of our participants and others in the fields of religion, uh, journalism, people who are doing journalism about religion, religions, religious scholars and the intersection of media studies and teachers of journalism to contribute to uh, a, an edited volume that comes out of these conversations and that would focus on those case studies uh, that we hope that all of you who are here participating will join with and writing in your own genre, and that's key, right? So write to your to your constituency. So so that'll be a, one other resource that we're hoping to be able to create out of all of these series. I also just want to uh, again uh, pause to say thank you to Sarah Ben, Levy Brightman, and Lauren Kirby, who again were both intellectually and pragmatically central to the cre creation and construction and implementation of these uh, conversations, and we just must give them a hand. Right, okay, and then final, two other uh, uh, final thank yous. First of all, I wanna again thank uh, Dean David Hempton, who has been absolutely supportive of exactly these kinds of endeavors, not just the symposium series, but his own religions and the practice of the peace initiative, uh, the R racial healing and justice initiative here that is started by our students that he's been incredibly supportive of, a vision of what it means to take religion seriously into the world. And this, so this is not just a, a one-off, but a, a deep commitment of, that he has brought to us and our school is getting stronger for it and I couldn't be luckier to feel like I am in the orbit with him at this time. So please, thank you for him. Again, thanks to all of our scholars and presenters, my colleague Steve Prothero for his incredible work in the field as an exemplar of this and also as a colleague thinking about these questions. Incredible, I always learn tremendous amount from you, so thank you. Thank you. Hand for Steve, please. And, and then finally, uh, none of us would be here if it wasn't, again, for the incredible generosity and vision of Bruce McGever. So Bruce, again, thank you so much.
may this conversation continue. May this be the beginning of what I hope will be collaborations. And thank you all for coming, and we continue, look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you.